was Panic from the Smiths, taken from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastor. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop as I cross time, space and genre. This week's special guest, all the way from New Zealand, is going to be Martin Phillips from The Chills. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight, as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. But I'm going to cut the chat and play the next track, because I've got a lot to pack in. This is taken from the album Submarine Bells. This is Heavenly Pop Hit.
Indeed, delightful pop sounds. That was titled Heavenly Pop Hit by The Chills, and that came from their 1990 album Submarine Bells. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. A little bit later on, I'll tell you how you can contact us, because we always love all your messages. And um, also, yes, how you can find the show on various exciting podcast social media sites, including... Podbean, Spotify, and also iTunes. So there you go, not to be missed. But anyway, as you gathered, this week's special guest is going to be the front man, Martin Phillips from The Chills, because I caught up, with, caught up with him a few months ago to find out about life, love and poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff. But before the first part of that interview, I think we should play some more music by the band. This is from a John Peel session that went out in 1987, a fine year for music. This is titled Dan Destiny and the Silver Dawn. Take it away. Indeed, the unmistakable sound of the chills, and that was a track titled Dan Destiny and the Silver Dawn, and that was on a John Peel session that came out in 1987. I do believe it was recorded sort of April time, just in case you want to know. And um, if anybody ever tests you and you're at a party, you will know. Anyway, before that, they also did a session in 1985. I just want to make sure that you've got all the facts. It's so important in this day and age. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. This week's special guest is Martin Phillips, all the way from New Zealand. I know we spare no expense on this show. And um, yeah, an interview I did a couple of months ago. This is the first part of the interview where we were talking about the early years of the band and especially in that post-punk period of about 1980 to 82 and then the birth of indie pop that we love so much and this was Martin's reply. Martin, take it away. Uh, Well, first of all, it's interesting you say that because I... That's something I've only been aware of lately, that, that what is regarded as the indie scene started a little later here. I mean, indications were from where we were that it was already underway. We're, we're hearing things like, oh, I don't know, I, I, oh gosh, the slits, um, raincoats, uh, fire engines, that kind of stuff. And to me, that is kind of part of that indie thing, but I guess it's not now. You know, it's been, all been categorised differently. Anyway... There was no sort of tra- transitional point largely because of bands like Toy Love who came directly from a much more song-oriented but very powerful punk kind of delivery but always had a 60s pop sensibility to them, especially in their songwriting. So um, that was a that was kind of like a less industrial way of taking that energy forward where in New Zealand, I think a lot of people... Uh, 
I guess, related to the you know the Manchester thing and the, and the, that what was happening with under Thatcher in Britain and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we didn't have the same sort of urban squalor on that on that kind of uh, on that level. So um, a lot of bands just sort of took their energy and, and went. Um, yeah, sort of high energy pop, I guess, and uh, that that would account for the you know the clean and ourselves um, up north bands like the Able Tasmans and Birdness Roy's and that kind of stuff. So yeah, uh, we I guess we already did have the first couple of singles and the Dunedin double EP out by eighty uh, three anyway. So, yes. Well, I suppose those yeah. bands you mentioned, like the Slits, the Raincoats, they, they were sort of very much still in that sort of, I suppose, the punk world. They'd sort of been around that kind of environment, whereas I suppose a lot of the bands that were coming through more in the, the 80s, slightly 83 time, were had you know were just probably a bit too young to have gone and seen those kind of early gigs. So they, they sort of were influenced by them. But then, as you mentioned, there was the kind of the political period, which was kind of very important in the UK because we had, you know, like there was the, the Thatcher government, there'd been the Falklands, then there'd been the miners' strike which was developing and there was a lot of unemployment. So those places like Manchester and Liverpool, especially that had so many bands, a, a lot of people have just mentioned that, well, there wasn't much else to do and you could claim unemployment benefit really easily and then think, oh, well, actually, we'll just, for some, you know, some brilliant reason, form a band and, and make some quite interesting and innovative sound. So I think that was kind of a big part of the background to, to why there was well one of the reasons why there were so many indie bands at the UK but yeah they yeah so there was there was definitely a different feeling I think with this sort of the the bands who became known as I suppose indie from the 80s which you know there was a slight grey area no man's land but then yeah I mean a lot of those bands like the Raincoats and Slits have pretty well had their day by the time the Smiths first single and album came. Yeah that's right and, and I should really make clear that I didn't follow the, the weekly music papers, which I think, you know, notoriously didn't get here till about two or three months late anyway, but a lot of my friends did. So they were aware of all, what was happening. And, um, you know, I think the, the legend of Roger Shepard starting Flying Nun was because of bands, uh, labels like Postcard and so on. And in fact, uh, if you've ever seen the original Tally Ho clean release, the idea was that they were all going to have a uniform cover like that, and the insert was going to be what what um, made them stand apart from each other, and that was that was deliberately inspired by postcard. But when I first heard um, Orange Juice, it didn't it didn't move me at all. I was just because everything I was hearing was just so much more powerful than that, and and I must say the same when I first saw this guy on TV with Gladiola, you know, and the Smiths. I thought, what's going on here, you know? Have we lost some ground? Has people forgotten, you know, the intensity of the punk experience? It took me a long time to sort of connect the dots and see quite how courageous those people were and that they were following their own path, um, you know, through this and, and really, you know, creating... Um, yeah, breaking new ground, I guess. Yes. And also, I mean, did you manage to get your sound quite together, you know, relatively easily? I mean, so some bands, it seems to be instant. Some bands, it was, you know, a couple of years. And sometimes, and in cases of like, well, we're still not going anywhere. We'll just give it one last shot. And suddenly got the sort of a sound or single that, that in the case of, you know, bands around here or in the UK, it was, you know, it was the John Peel play that gave them that, next step it was almost like well up to then you know you're just playing in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can kind of emotionally blackmail to come and see your gig and then suddenly John Peel would play it and then it was like you'd suddenly get a gig you know somebody would get you know like oh yeah do you want to come to I don't know Harlow in Essex or you know Leeds, London, Brighton, you know, Bristol, you know, it would be on the circuit. I suppose there was a definite an art centre kind of circuit where you'd probably get 100, 200 people almost guaranteed to go, you know, to go and see a gig on a Monday night. Uh, well, certainly, again, there were, there were people who were aware of what uh, what was being played on John Peel, and I, I wasn't, but uh, it was pointed out to us very quickly when he, uh, I think, was was given a, a bunch of flying nun singles and started playing our stuff 
quite early in the 80s, actually. So um, that that really got us going in terms of touring a lot to raise the money to get to England and so on. But I think you asked about the actual getting the sound together. I, I, I'd say we still haven't got our sound together after all these years. I think um, we're fortunate that a crucial song like Pink Frost had a, a very special sound of its own, but even that has roots in the Velvet Underground, some of the very boomy kind of um, uh, move right in, that kind of stuff, through through the clean, point that thing into uh, into the into the chills and other bands. Um, but that was just one one aspect, and everything else about about the chill sound was very hit and miss and often due largely just to what instruments we kind of stumbled across, like uh, the New Zealand-made Janssen transonic organ that, that was used on, um, you can hear it quite a lot on Satin Doll on, on the Dunedin WP, uh, had individual sustain circuits for every single key, so it would have that real beautiful chiming sound. And without those kind of happy accidents, uh, I, I certainly wasn't the kind of person who would say, how are these people getting this sound? Or um, what kind of guitars are they using? What kind of effect pedals in, in particular? So, um, yeah, we kind of blundered our way through in, in a lot of ways, I think. Indeed, such modesty. Anyway, that's the uh, first part of my interview with Martin Phillips from The Chills, talking about those early years of the band. Anyway, David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact us, we love your messages, as long as they're kind of positive and groovy. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And as I said, I've um, been archiving the uh, show or shows um, for the last couple of years. And so you can find them on both Spotify iTunes and if you go to Mixcloud or Podbean they're also all there just go to C86 and or C86 show and you'll find them and you'll say wow that's what I've been missing in my life all this time anyway a bit more music um this is another track taken from a John Peel session not from 87 but in fact 1985 this is Rolling Man
and relax. That was the chills and the track Rolling Moon. I might have introduced it as Rolling Man, but um, that was um, a bit of a typo on the website that I was reading. But for those paying attention, that was another John Peel session, not 1987, but in fact 1985. So there you go, do check it out. And um, all their John Peel sessions are now available for your delight. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Martin Phillips from the band, where I was talking about bands from both Australia and New Zealand, but quite a few from Australia, who decided to relocate from their hometown and uh, country and come all the way to the UK to try and make it big in the indie pop world, which I think is quite amazing. I'm not sure if many bands would would want to go the other way, but uh, no, the Triffids go betweens and also the Chills did the same thing. And this was Martin's reply to that very interesting comment or question that I asked him. Martin, tell us. One of the things that really happened was that Australia was seen as the uh, the obvious stepping stone to to anywhere that you'd go and sort of play the hard circuits in Australia. We'd seen that destroy a number of bands, in particular Toy Love, and their plan had been to get to England all along. So um, the smartest thing I think the Chills were encouraged to do is just bypass Australia and go directly to England um, or, or the United States, just anywhere with a bigger, a bigger market. But at that time, uh, there was that bubbling awareness of the chills even into parts of Europe because of, uh, you know, the John Peel and some of the weeklies had already reviewed some of the singles and so on. So that made, that made real sense. Um, obviously, there was no reason for anybody to go from the Northern Hemisphere down to New Zealand trying to seek their own, to seek their fortune. There was not much to come to, really. But uh, I'm really glad we did. We got in just when we just when we did i think it was kind of crucial timing for everything that happened after that even a year or so later didn't work for other bands that came after us um things had moved on just too drastically we got there in a, a kind of period of turmoil where a lot of bands were breaking up there was kind of like a bit of a gap i think we got a wee bit a little more uh, of a showcase than we probably would have two years either side of that kind of period um and we played an awful lot through uh through europe and and the uk so yeah the timing the timing was everything but um again i wasn't paying attention to what was happening uh in musical trends and you know all of a sudden there was there was brit pop and there was the first sort of acid house and stuff coming along and um, things that just absolutely made us look old fashioned. And um, so it was, it was good by the end that America had kind of opened up a bit, but um, yeah. Yes. Then of course other problems came. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there was the, the other thing that I hadn't sort of appreciated that much um, was this kind of yeah m- these musical periods and I, I know it kind of gets a bit simplistic and it doesn't <clears throat> it's not 100% watertight this theory but you know indie did sort of have a have a kind of glorious period of sort of 83 to 87 and then the music scene started to change and then there was the dance scene and then there was the grunge, grunge scene from Seattle and then after that there was the Britpop period and and for a lot of bands especially who'd started in the sort of Earlyish eighties by eighty seven eighty eight. I think they they felt tired. I think they'd sort of kind of had creatively run their moment, and also probably got to hate each other, and also had no hadn't made any money. So I think they just felt like actually I'm just going to give it up now and go back to college or something like that. So yes, that that kind of things moving on because obviously being you know because you're quite different in the sense that you did you when you came over because I'm kind of curious about this did is it the case that you were just like we're just on the road for several months or were, did you sort of get a base in the either UK or Europe? When we first came over was at the end of '85 just for six weeks and they were all London shows except for one in Brighton and we were just kind of living on floors at our um, managers and friends places New Zealanders who had gone ahead and were largely living in squats and um, Bonington Square and Vauxhall that kind of that kind of thing um, and I think 
one of the things that actually served us well was this back then the amount of people going through the chills at the same time uh, at that time in the early years kept things kind of fresh you know when you're talking about bands who are getting sick of each other by that point i was i think it's one of the few pluses of having um the you know the oft quoted chills revolving door policy um back then just meant there was fresh fresh blood and fresh ideas and generally a step up in quality every time the band uh kind of reformed or changed so that meant that we were actually in better form you know for the transition to major labels or the american market by the end of the 80s than than we could have possibly been at the in the the first sort of energetic flush of the say 80 to 82 period because um because i had noticed you yes i i was thinking uh, there was a lot of members and thinking, God, oh, that must have been an interesting dynamic. So actually, that was a good thing rather than than you were just having fire in every every drummer and bassist that came into the band. <laughs> no, I think if it's um, obviously it's complicated, but I think there's only two people I've actually asked to leave the band, and um, and with the new band, two of the members have been with me 19, 19 years now and the other two 15 and 10 years. So we've actually got over half the Chills history now is essentially one band. And that's, um, uh, you know, that's starting to really show in these in the new albums, just what was happening with that coming coming together and the understanding of what we're trying to achieve. Yes. But in the early days, you know, it's it's kind of hard to, hard to describe because you, you will know well from talking with lots of bands, how difficult it is to maintain that kind of energy, that excitement when you're up against the kind of the realities of earning and young families springing up. And you've got all that, plus you're coming from the other side of the world with um, vast airfares every time you want to travel. So uh, most of the band members went on to other non-musical careers. You know, it really was a case of as their parents had hoped, getting music out of their system and, get, and settling down to a real job. Um, the very, very few of them went on to any sort of musical career, with a notable exception, obviously, of um, the two bass players, Martin Kane, who went into Stereo Lab, and Justin Harwood, who ended up in Luna. So, um, but the yeah, most of the others, you know, they'd, they'd still make music now and again, but it was, it was largely getting getting out of the music scene altogether. And that was the second part of my interview with Martin Phillips. We've still got quite a bit more of that to go because we had such an interesting chat. It gets very deep and interesting a bit later on. But anyway, I think we should play some more music to keep the party rolling. This is going to be your favourite of mine. Yes, Pink Frost. It's very beautiful.
There is such a thing as pop perfection. That was The Chills with the track Pink Frost, and that came from their compilation album from 1986 on Flying Nun Records. That was titled Kaleidoscope World. Anyway, this is going to be the, I think, the third part of my interview with Martin, where we were talking about the longevity of the band, which um, normally lasts about five years. On With The Chills, I do believe during that first phase, it was a bit longer. But uh, this is the narrative that we were talking about and um, how it sort of came to an end in the first stage of the band. And this was Martin's reply. Martin, take it away. Oh, things were such a confusing mess at that point. Anyway, we were working on the second of the albums with Slash Warner Brothers, um, and just the tide had turned. You know, people were basically over us. There was, as you say, much more interesting stuff happening. Um, the whole hip hop thing was really very exciting and and grunge and so on. I I felt at the time that. Surely we've established ourselves as kind of a, a reliable brand name band. Myself as a songwriter, quickly found out that this wasn't the case, you know, that uh, we were quite disposable and we were soon disposed of by our record, record companies. But there wasn't a solid band there at the time. And I suspect if there had been, we would have done exactly what you just suggested. We would have actually looked around and said, what are we going to do? You know, do we actually start trying to follow trends or um, stick to our guns. I think essentially a lot of a lot of people in my age group, that is the time they bowed out of the music scene. And, and I mean, not just in the chills, obviously, but in all the bands that I'd grown up with um, from the late 70s right through the 80s, that was that time when family pressures were really kicking in. So uh, a lot of people really had to decide once and for all, is there a career for me in this or not? And most of them, I think, wisely decided there wasn't. I was, I was too, uh, too stubborn, too stupid, I think, and just kept going through, through lack of anything better to do. Yes. And obviously, you know, like with being in music and the world, wonderful world that is rock and roll, it does, it does do a lot to people's kind of brains and bodies. And most people often, you know, I spoke to, it, they stopped as well because actually they just... They they just were having too many problems emotionally. Did you have moments like that as well? That was kind of the start of my worst period. Was it was early nineties, being dropped by Warner Brothers. When, if you can imagine, my first band that I joined the same started. Actually, it's forty years next week since that was our first um, practice. Um, and that had evolved into the chill. So essentially, that was a step up. The whole chills thing had been had been this rise in momentum and excitement right through the eighties. Kind of peaked around the early nineties and then just collapsed spectacularly. So um although there'd been I think a a reasonable, realistic amount of drink and a bit of marijuana, a bit of cocaine here and there, um, through some of the later years in particular, no, nobody was addicted to anything, um, wasn't even sort of regular use of anything, but but my personal kind of downward spiral started soon after that, and right through the sort of mid mid to late nineties, um, were very, you know very troubled times for me indeed. Uh, so yeah, that's that's when that kind of all started. Yes, and how long? I mean, did it take a did you literally have to have a sit down with yourself and anybody else to sort of get get things sorted to sort of move on? Because obviously you're still creating music, but with those kind of periods where you have to, um, yes, have some big questions and some sort of 
new solutions to problems. Did that take quite a while to get that kind of sorted out, to move on again? Well, it did. And again, it's it's very complicated in terms of the various threads involved, but because I re-signed with Flying Nun and did the Sunburned album in 95 and toured that in 96 through the States and Europe. Um, but, you know, there was just very, very little response to that. It was more, uh, just a lot more problems. I think in the late 90s, just when I was starting to pull myself out of it, um, that's when I contracted hepatitis C. So it's taken me until uh, basically this this year to finally be free of that. So that's um, that's nearly yeah. There's twenty twenty years of basically feeling sick, and that's um, got that's the that's the sort of bedrock that I mean that everything else has been sort of built on since. Um, my ability to function or not combined with, uh, you know, with some real depression kind of issues, uh, drug addiction, drug abuse kind of issues. Um, I will say in my defence that I never stopped and all, and I wrote music right through that all that time, but trying to find from New Zealand the means to actually get that out into the world as an ongoing career was just so problematic. Um, and living on a sickness benefit meant that it was actually hard to even do demos of that material. I'd, I had so many things on cassette, which was just not, you know, obviously not the standard that you could try and attract interest from record companies or even booking agents for tours. So every time I'd sort of get some money, try and get some advice on what the best equipment was to get, um, it just never seemed to quite work out. I'd, I'd end up with equipment that wasn't quite up to it or didn't work or was quickly made re- redundant. Um, a long, long frustrating time. Yes. That basically basically changed in 2011 when we got asked to play, to play at a private 50th birthday New Year's Eve party. And the guy turned out to be a um, millionaire, millionaire art dealer from America who had been a Chills fan and couldn't believe that we were kind of stagnating. So he gave us the push, which resulted in the live album, Somewhere Beautiful, and the first single, Molten Gold. And then there was a transition onto Fire Records, and that's obviously, you know, where things have really taken off since. So without that very fortuitous private party, we could still be, you know, just treading water. Or it could be over. I don't know. Indeed. The murky and sometimes tricky world that is being into rock and roll. That is the third part of my interview with uh, Martin Phillips. I've still got quite a lot more to go, but I think we should have a track. This is going to be from the album Snowbound that came out in 2018. This is titled Complex. I know. I am right up to date and surfing the zeitgeist. <laughs> Bye. 
complex Piece of the plan, not the man You think I am, I'm a complex Piece of the plan, not the man Another stonkingly good song. That is The Chills, and uh, that's a track titled Complex that came out um, from the album Snowband from 2018. You see, they're still alive and kicking. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show, as I said a bit earlier, and just in case you were thinking, I didn't have a pen and paper, you can contact me via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. It's always groovy to um, hear from you, as long as it's positive. And also, as I have mentioned in the past and probably mentioned every day, you can find the show on Spotify, iTunes, and also on Mixcloud. The archive is there. Anyway, this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Martin Phillips from The Chills, where we were talking about that interesting and sometimes murky world that is the record uh, industry. It's, yes, it's a very murky world at times. But anyway, this was Martin's reply. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a hideous business, it really is. I think it, it attracts even more sharks than... Um, the motion picture industry does, and that's that's really saying something. So I've been very fortunate that I've had uh, my manager, Scott Muir, was recommended uh, by mutual friends in the early 2000s. And um, between the two of us and my vast archives, we were able to sort of sort out a lot of that stuff. I mean, I had, excuse me, it was I mean, it wasn't that complicated, really, but um, we've but kept on top of it ever since. And, you know, there's mistakes have been made, particularly in terms of songwriting credits and stuff. It's a, it's a tricky one because, oh gosh, when you've got a band and you record a song and everyone's kind of, you know, come up with their own parts, there are those who understand that, no, all you've done is kind of contributed to the arrangement of the song. There are others who firmly believe they've, contributed to the actual creation of that song. Um, and with the chills, obviously, with all those early lineups, it meant that by the time we recorded our first album, we were recording songs like, say, Night of Chill Blue, after seven years that it had probably had, say, four bass players and three keyboardists and, and so on. And all of them had listened to each other's live recordings to base their new part on. So that's why I was basically sole songwriter. And, you know, to be fair, if there, if there, there were exceptions and they were always credited. But then I quickly discovered that's not the best way of keeping a band happy and um, and uh, content and loyal is, is taking all the songwriting royalties. So the, these days with this band, uh, there's a set percentage that each member gets on all material, whether they've contributed to it or not. So it just means they've got a vested interest in the participation of the songwriting process, even though essentially they are still, I, I bring more or less complete songs to the band and they get, um, you know, put through people's expertise. Uh, because I'm such a rudimentary musician, they'll be, they'll be taken, you know, say I'm trying to evoke this kind of atmosphere or, or this run needs to kind of go start around there and end up around there. What are my options? That kind of stuff. Um, and it's just it's created a sense of kind of unity and I guess calmness in the band. Um, there's not that underlying resentment anymore, and I absolutely strongly recommend that to any other any young band now. Just um, it's not fair for a songwriter to go evenly split with everybody because you are doing the hundreds of hours of work at home by yourself, coming up with the actual the, the actual material but to not acknowledge the fact that people are getting on board your very precarious little vessel and heading out into unknown waters, um, you know, that's not fair either. So, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to find a compromise that works. Yes, well, that's quite tricky because it's interesting in the sense that, yes, because the kind of the latest lineup, all those sort of, I don't know, I mean, I know you've had quite a few different lineups 
Hundreds, actually. But the, the, in the last couple of decades, almost, roughly, you've had the, probably the steadiest lineup of the band compared to the very early years where it was just, it was a revolving door, really, wasn't it? Your HR department must have been, he says, um, whizzing in and out, going, oh, someone's left the band, oh, someone's joined, they're left, okay. You know, so it, does that feel a lot better now that you've got a much more steady lineup and you can remember who's playing what? Oh, certainly. Yeah, and it was never never as bad as it's been made out in the in the media. Obviously, it was um, you know, it wasn't like <laughs> there was never the the threat of not knowing who was actually in the band at one time. But um, the fact they've stuck with me through very uncertain times during the two in the two thousands, um, and now having toured Europe twice in the last uh, four years or something, and couple of american shows two albums and a live album and a couple of, and a few singles and stuff it's really starting to pay off it's it's like you know they well they say it's what they dreamed of when they wanted a career in music they were all chills fans to what uh you know greater or lesser extents and so to find the band to, to come back into the band and then to find the band is having a really strong renaissance and in a lot of circles, is being regarded as as good as, or even better than we were in, say, the nineteen around nineteen ninety submarine bells. <clears throat> um, you couldn't ask for more than join your favourite band and suddenly find it's not just a nostalgia package; it's actually a, a you know a creative vehicle firing on all cylinders. Yes, and it's, it must be again, you know, because you're doing quite well cataloguing or archiving and getting the BBC sessions as well all nicely packaged because you did quite a few John Peel sessions which is always a big thing um for the for the sort of I suppose John Peel fans really isn't it you know to get that is almost like um I don't know being blessed by the Pope in music <laughs> yeah and again my, my ignorance I didn't really know I hadn't heard John Peel sessions before we got there otherwise I would have chosen the songs um quite differently um I saw them as an opportunity to kind of demo new songs or just ones that were perhaps sounding better than they had when we recorded them, do a new version. The real shame is we were doing some great covers at that time. We've, there's always been one or two in the set, and we were doing a blistering version of Cat Stevens' Matthew and Son uh, in the late 80s, and also a weird kind of punk, Bo Diddley version of what, um, what Should We Do With The Drunken Sailor, that there's some great live cassettes, but that, you know, that would have been the perfect kind of thing to do on the Peel session. And I just didn't know that until, you know, I sort of learned more about what they actually were later on. And by then we were kind of, I think, signed to Slash and Warner Brothers and we're sort of no longer, you know, we kept approaching the BBC and we weren't allowed to do John Peel, we weren't allowed to do Janice Long and because, you know, we were now a big band <laughs> and, and presumably had backing from a major label. So that was kind of sad to find ourselves on the other side of that because um, it was special. Uh, as you all know, but a lot of people don't, you don't actually get to meet John Peel at the sessions. You know, they just recorded in, in our case and made a veil, I think it was, like uh, two or three anyway. And But we did actually get to meet him when he DJed a show in Belgium that we played at. And that was great because, uh, you know, he's just, he was just so personable. No bullshit. You know, he, he could talk about your singles and what songs he liked and what songs he didn't like. And, and it, was, it was great. And what would, you, what would you say to your kind of 18-year-old self? I just, you know, in that, what, the lessons you've learned more than anything that you would think, God, I could just write that down in a, in a few snappy bullet points to sort of, yeah, just those kind of real lessons. Because everyone with age, you, you sort of, you know, you're not the same person you were when you were 18. I mean, there are things you've you've picked up and you think, God, just this is it. And I just wondered what your key kind of key points would be. Um, I talked about being a rudimentary musician before. There, I, I know my fingers just don't work very fast and I don't think they ever will. But having said that, I know when, I, when we tour, and uh, playing a lot, I get an awful lot better. So I would say to my young self, um, don't be scared of using of losing your unique vision and style 
by actually learning to play your instruments better because you won't. You just learn to you'll learn to uh, make those ideas more real, ones that you can't quite access. I would also say, yes, drink and drugs, but no, you're not immune like you think you are at that age. I really did because I, I thought I'd, I'd had tried most of the major drug groups and I would proudly tell people, and none of them has made any, maybe an addict. Well, you know, it's a combination of a lot of things that make you an addict, and that was still around the corner. So if I could tell my young self that, you are about to waste at least six years of your life if you if you go into that too, too uh, strongly. Um, I would tell myself to communicate better with the band, as we do now. We actually have meetings where we say, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace more or less it's like you know anything that's on your mind this is we've got this is where we talk about it there was so much bottled up and so much that never got said and is only now being revealed as the documentary about the chills is being completed i've seen some of the interviews with the ex-band members and it's like oh my god i had no idea what some of those people felt or thought or were actually going through at that time and that is the last part of my interview with martin phillips from the chills and if you want to know any more information they do have a facebook page and also i do believe a website and um, activity in the new year or this year and beyond so there you go a huge thank you for giving me the time thank you ever so much for listening this has been david eastall the c86 show and i'll leave you with another track by the chills this is matthew and son Thank you.